Does anyone have a screwdriver? Why would why would you need a screwdriver to turn a screw? I don't want you to what screw what screw? Hmm? What screw do you need to turn? Oh, tiny little screwdriver. No. Tiny little screwdriver. I might do actually. See me after class. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the last time I said that, I felt really sore afterwards. <laughs> And welcome once again to World One Stage One. We're back. I am yeah. Simon. Oh, I'm I'm still Jack after all this time. I don't want to say who I am because if I say it, it'll come out wrong. <laughs> Someone else introduced me, <laughs> and, and that's that... Bernadette. Yes. Oh, hello, sailor. <laughs> oh, I. Oh. I think we should point out to people, <laughs> before things kick off, this is actually our second attempt to record this episode. Yes. Uh, oh, my God. Yes. Oh, no. We're talking, like, proper, where were you when Elvis was shot? Where, wait. Elvis. <laughs> 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 oh, I was, was going to say, let's not use this one, but after that, that's too good. <laughs> where were you? Yeah, where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you By when Elvis. Princess died? <laughs> Died. Where were you when the Mac crashed? Oh my god. Something happened today I've never seen in my life. I have now seen a Mac crash, and it's the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. It just went grey. Didn't it look like it was still working? Yeah, it just went grey, and then a little thing popped up. I swear it was like some sort of satanic message. What you are listening to, people, is the sound of two people who have never seen a Mac crashing, because they don't. That was the second time mine ever has. Yeah. Seriously, life-changing moment. I've seen a Mac crash. Yes, and hopefully it won't crash again, and then this will actually make it to the internets. So, if if we sound like we're hashing old topics, or if we're just taking the piss a little bit because we've been through this before and thought of a funnier joke the second time round, because we have... Yep. I will try and keep things fresh by occasionally interjecting a very forced... Oh, really? And you can keep things fresh because you don't remember what we talked about last time, even though it was minutes ago. No, it was weeks ago, remember? It wasn't minutes, we had chips. No, I mean, last time we tried to record this. Yeah, it was weeks ago, remember? <laughs> hey, Actually, uh, it has been a while since we tried to record because the equipment that we usually use to record... Well, how was it you put it last time, Jack? Caught fire, fell down, then sank into the swamp. Which isn't quite accurate, but it's close. Which is why we're uh, improvising today with... Uh, the crushing Mac, and a new setup of microphones. So you might notice that I, in particular, sound much different than I usually do. And I might sound slightly louder, hopefully. And clearer. Hopefully. We're going to experiment, and please bear with us. Oh. We're going to experiment, and please bear with us whilst we settle into this new setup, which may or may not be changing over time anyway. Uh, But for now, we will soldier on with what we have. The world's most professional podcast. Are we just? God damn, we're special. I mean, we are lounging on a sofa, a director's chair, and some sort of swivelly computer chair that's going to shoot its column up Simon's rectum when it fails. <laughs> Get oh, the you camera. You listened to the old episodes, wonderful. I, I, I did. 
I remember that one. Oh, God, that image is still plastered and in my mind. there you are, still sitting on that chair. I know. I, I do Feel remember it from time to time. I just go, oh, God, what happens if... I'll see if you my, my computer chair's broken. It doesn't actually, it doesn't actually push up anymore, so I'm wondering if it's just, it's just gathering its strength. <laughs> it's biding its time. Waiting for the right moment to wreck me for life. It's hiding. Not hiding, I'm sitting... Oh, wah. Yes, before we get going tonight, we figured we'd address some of the feedback and letters we've had. Yes, we did, listeners. Yes, we actually did this before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you remember. Well done, Jack. <laughs> I might be lying. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> because in the uh, few weeks, whilst we've been struggling to uh, get stuff together to record again, we've had a few letters, a few tweets, which I've is always shocked. appreciated. Oh, you know? really? <laughs> I'm going to smack I'll you. I've reached the middle of this conversation. <laughs> Uh, yes, we've had feedback from Finland, from New York, from the days of the Commodore 64. <gasps> yes. And we'd like to say thank you to everyone for getting in touch. Yes, seriously. Please keep going, although, as I, have, I believe I mentioned before, stop. Because you're blowing my whole theory that we don't have any listeners. It's true, and I do like to see Jack sad, so... We all like to see Jack sad. Go right ahead. So we'd like to address some of the questions that have come up in no particular order. Oh, yes. Troy, well, what is our relationship with Troy? Well, one day, a little blessed being hatched. One day in Teletubby land. Troy hatched and scampered away, scuttled away. I like scuttled. scuttled it creates away. a certain mental image of what beast I may have been. And killed two... Doctors. Doctors. Not guards. They were not armed guards. They were <laughs> armed doctors. I have a thing about, you know, murdering guards, mostly because no one thinks about the guards' families. Doctors, on the other hand, I have a serious beef with the medical profession. They have tried to end my life on more than one occasion. Yeah, but so have I. Yeah, Although but... Although I realise I'm saying that wearing my medic shirt. Yeah. Doctor! But yes, that's that's my relationship to the... Wait, no, that doesn't explain a thing! Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the that's, point. That's like my origin story. Yeah, that's... you grew out. You grew out of a boil on the back of my head, hatched, killed two guards, medics, doctors, <laughs> and scuttled away. You know what? As far as an if, as a, a issue zero, that is the worst origin story I think since Arm Fall Off Boy. Worst or best? Also, Arm Fall Off Boy didn't have an origin story. No, because how can you explore that one day? Is an alien. Off? Also. Uh, why do I dislike survival horror so much? Well, uh, because of a terribly traumatic experience that I lived through in Latvia some years ago. Good time, was it man. Latvia? It was Latvia, yes. It, it wasn't somewhere like, you know, I want to say Burma, but does that even exist anymore? Yes. Or Siam? No. Neither of which I've been to. Oh. And You've been to Latvia? I have. For real? No. This, oh. this is a joke. This is a whole joke section we're doing right now. God damn, you could have kept... You could have, <laughs> man, you could have kept that going for so Latvia. long. Yeah, let's go to Latvia. Oh, no, you can't, because of the survival horror yeah, shit. I can't go no, 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 now you're going to tell some true things. Just to, just to really throw me. <laughs> well, actually, the very easy solution to why I don't like survival horror is I don't like being shit up by horror. <laughs> which, is where, which is one of those places bad. where you and I differ very, very greatly. Yeah, because you really which, enjoy it. Which is awesome. Yes, it's good to have two differing opinions. Exactly. Especially on a debating... Po- well, not really debating, but a, a conversational podcast. Where do you stand on the subject, Troy? That's actually a very good question. Survival horror as a genre, I can take or leave. It depends on the game. Because some of the, some of the games I've played have been just really badly done. Where it's like, okay, I'm opening a door, I know something's going to jump out at me, 
I'm not scared by it. Whereas mm. games that unintentionally, you know, surprise me and scare me, Half-Life being one of the last ones to do it, uh, are scary, and I enjoy that. It's odd. I, I quite enjoyed a lot of the moments in Half-Life that were survival horror-esque. Mm. Although Half-Life 2, I did really not enjoy Ravenholm. Oh, God, you shouldn't go there. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. You see, I think the problem is, I went into Ravenholm with the game giving me a sort of, this is going to be a survival horror sequence moment, and therefore I... I tripped my little I-don't-like-survival-horror switch. Went, I'm not going to enjoy this bit. But there's lots of bits throughout the game that are survival horror in their uh, influence that I quite enjoyed. So I, I don't know. I don't quite know what it is. I just don't get on with the genre. Ravenholm just jumped up and down and went, I am Silent Hill! Yeah, really I, am, I am Raccoon City! No, it was Resident Evil more than Silent Hill. Oh, yeah, yeah. well... I'm not really very well versed in the thing, but it was jumping up and down going, oh, look how very like that we can be. Which well, was it was more so. sort of any any zombie invasion, really. Day of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead. But it was screaming, because in computer game terms, it was screaming that oh, it was absolutely. a survival horror Oh, game. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about Half-Life today. We're not. No, we're just getting side uh, sidetracked, aren't we? Yeah. Oh, a little and to bit. remind everybody, Half-Life is available now on Steam. <laughs> Oh yeah, we haven't we haven't mentioned Steam yet. We have now. Yeah, so There's, now we have. Don't worry, Steam is coming up later. Yeah, some of the some of the games we are actually going to be talking about today are still available on Steam. Yeah. So you better go get them. Like well, now. once we talk about them. Yeah. No, later. Go get them later. Yes, later. Very later. Anyway, uh, the last thing to address. There was something else, wasn't housekeeping there? Housekeeping that you wanted to mention. Oh, and the Mister the the, <gasps> the the New Yorker, not the, the Jonathan, not the book. Not the book. Mr. Mr. Jonathan in New York. The New Yorker. Uh, you I mean the mentioned him, didn't I? No, that was uh, Timo, who is also Timo. wonderful. Not what Gino. Was I, I feel that we should underline the fact that one of our viewers said he cared that I was alive. Oh, Yeah, but yes. we don't care, so yes, it's so it's... hard to recall. <laughs> and yes, and I remember that sticking with you, yes. Yes, I, and I would like to point out that I would like to thank him <laughs> for, for being a man enough to lie on the internet and <laughs> pretend that he likes, he cares that I'm alive. Uh, to move on. Yes, rapidly let's. at this point. <laughs> yes, when you're quite finished. Sorry, I was really sore. <laughs> yes. And why is that, Troy? This chair's not immensely comfortable. You chose it. Oh, no. I regret that decision. <laughs> Are you a pillock, Troy? <laughs> yes. We were going to talk today about uh, point-and-click adventures because it's something we've all enjoyed in the past. It's a mm -hmm. genre we're all fond of. But the more you look at it as a genre, the more you realise it's incredibly broad in scope. Just to give a nod to some of the things we won't be talking about tonight, you start looking at the games by Infogrames, Sierra, Adventuresoft, and Horrorsoft, if they are not indeed one and the same. And you, you suddenly realise there's a lot of games oh, yes. in this genre. They, they may not get made anymore, so much, but there's an awful lot of them. So we decided to tighten our focus into what could be considered sort of the gem of the genre, which would be... Certainly the primogenitor to some degree. I don't know about that. Well, of, of the sort of modern classics. Yeah, I mean, I would say that there is an evolution from the text adventure going on here, but mm -hmm. uh, certainly when it comes to point and click, one of the standout names is LucasArts and Scum, the engine. Now, Scum's actually very interesting, because we started on the last you know, iteration of the show. Uh, we're now on show 
0.20, I suppose. <laughs> and we now know what SCUM stands for, which is quite interesting, quite telling on the system itself. And it's quite a useful fact to know, I suppose, for this episode. Yes. SCUM is an anagram. It is the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, which certainly puts pay to which was the first game developed in the SCUM engine. Yeah, ooh, correct. ooh, I know, I know. Loom. Correct. No. <laughs> <laughs> But nice call back to the unrecorded show. Yeah, no one else would get that but us. I like that. I've thrown <laughs> a little uh, joke there for us. Yes, Maniac Mansion, back in 1987. Wow. That's oh older than me. Oh, my that, that was almost a time before me. That was the time before me. You're kidding. No. Gosh, you're so small. Yes. And it'll please at least one of our followers, especially on Twitter... To hear that that was on the Commodore 64. Hooray! I don't believe such a system existed. Were there, 60, <laughs> were there 63 other Commodores? No. Are you, are you, are you a Commodore 64 denier? I, I just think that if the Commodore 64 happened, it happened on a much smaller scale. The Commodore 64 was a fantastic computer. I, it, if you go back and look at how many games were on the Commodore 64, it is truly astonishing. Would that not be partly due to the fact it was one of the only really viable home PC? No, not at all. No? I mean, a lot of those games also came out on other platforms, which is part of the reason that we don't talk about the C64 specifically very often, because mm-hmm. the same games would also be available on the Spectrum at the time. Oh, Spectrum. And oh. a lot of them were cross-platform. Spectrum the enemy. Uh, but Maniac Mansion was, in fact, C64. Uh, and that was version zero of the Scum engine. I still find it bewildering to count something as version zero. Well, the reason you do it is because when you make a revision, you call it version one, and then you have to call the first one something. Yeah, but you should call the first one one. First. One. <laughs> prima. Uno. Go. When you walk into a shop, what floor are you on? The ground floor. Right. What's the floor above that? Yeah, see, I don't understand that at all. No. Oh. You go up from the ground floor and you reach the first floor. No. No. No a thousand times. Yes, anyway. Uh, <laughs> the Commodore 64 version was rapidly improved upon with version 1, uh, which was on the PC later in the same year. That's a quick turnaround for games of the time as well. Yeah, and I get the feeling that version 1 was more adapting it to the PC than adding any features, but it's that attitude towards version numbering that could uh, probably explain why there are 10 versions, at least, of the Scum engine. Really? I thought there were only like 6 or something. No, uh, I've looked since I made that wildly unfounded claim. Oh, um, you were just lying to impress us. I said there were like seven, and do you know what? Ten is like seven. Yeah, no, it's, it's a number. Not. Yeah, if it's I have like ten it. girlfriends, I'm not nearly as much trouble as if I had seven. I think you'll find that Sabina would be just as angry. I don't know, I think we should ask Tiger Woods for his opinion on the matter. <laughs> wow, look at us being all topical about sports of all things. We're not really topical, topical this was sports. fucking months ago. <laughs> To be fair, it was fucking a few weeks ago if he had his way, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. Sorry. (laughs) It peaks. That really hurts. (laughs) I was thoroughly expecting you to do it again then. Oh, why would I do that? Because you're a cock. Well, well, no, I'm not that nasty a person. Anyway. Uh, Funnily enough, the the third game to come out, if we count uh, Maniac Mansion coming out twice as the first and second games... Well, a, a, a rehashing, effectively. Maniac Mansion and Maniac Mansion version 1. 
Well, no, Scum version one. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to make him flip out and turn into the Incredible Hulk. Was one that I, I really I did Jack. it once. It was one that I know Jack hadn't heard of, which was Zach McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. <laughs> no, I hadn't heard that as well. But McCracken and Benders in the same sentence. It was um, the same version, I believe, uh, of Scum as Maniac Mansion. It's of the same era. It was uh, a sort of 1988 game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being from LucasArts and being called Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders, you can imagine how much sense it makes. It does conjure a certain image. Yeah. Uh, and I need to know more about Zack McCracken before I say anything else. <laughs> I think you know all there is that needs to be known about Zack McCracken. Fair enough. Also, let's just say it once more. Zack McCracken and the Alien Mindbenders. Okay, now that we've had our fun out of that title. <laughs> Zack McCracken. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, right, this is going to be, be even more fun. I, that might be where I got my mistake from. Uh, version 1.5 of the Scum Engine uh, was Maniac Mansion again when it was ported over onto the Nintendo. Ah, okay. Uh-huh. And this brings us on to what we were talking about in the uh, recording that never quite got saved, which is that the Scum Engine is incredibly versatile and very easy to port between platforms. You know, mm-hmm. we've noticed here Commodore 64, PC, Nintendo, very different systems. Oh, yeah. So I actually found this fascinating. Why is this? This is because a Scum Engine exists as uh, a sort of pseudocode, very similar to how Java works, or to find a gaming analogy, Quake C, which was the modding language for the original Quake Engine which is where the programming language isn't compiled into an executable, which is what traditionally happens uh, for a single platform. It is left in its scripted form, and then the program that is compiled on each system is an interpreter, which reads that script and then does the appropriate things. So it's very easy to quickly write an interpreter for a specific platform, and then you can take the scum files for the game, translate it onto that system, and it will run which is both why Scum was so broadly released, being on the Commodore 64, the Apple II, the Apple Macintosh, the Amiga, the Atari, the NES, the Turbo Graphics, the CDO. Uh, <laughs> it was on CDTV as well, wasn't CDTV, it? CDTV, yeah. The washing machine. And why the <laughs> um, modern-day open-source development Scum VM, which is a... A uh, reverse-engineered interpreter for Scum games runs on the Nintendo DS, the Wii, the Xbox, you know, anything with a touchscreen, the iPhone. Which is awesome, because I've got Maniac Mansion in my pocket. Yep. Wow. My estimation of the iPhone has gone up several notches. <laughs> yeah, but you're forgetting that I've got a DS. Yeah, but... You know, I could have Maniac Mansion in my pocket. Yeah, but you're three, so I don't want to play with your toys. They've probably got spit all over them. True. Sometimes. Sometimes it's not spit. But I don't... Ah. Oh. <laughs> Took me a week to fill these. <laughs> uh, and funnily enough, one of the earliest games in LucasArts' uh, scum library was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which passed you by, didn't it, right? I didn't know about that one, because yeah. Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis... That's the well-known one. It's, it's a great game. But uh, Indiana Jones, it's a movie tie-in game. I didn't realise they did that back the last, in the 80s. The Last Crusade got two tie-in games. Really? It got an action game, which I believe was a side-scrolling shooter. That oh, makes sense. That indeed. must have ended really well. Yeah. And a uh, graphic adventure, which mm-hmm. was done using the Scum Engine. Wow. 
Okay. And that's, that would be, that's pretty cool. I think that would be, funnily enough, uh, Last Crusade. Who directed that one? That's Steven Spielberg. That's what I was thinking. That would be Spielberg's first foray into gaming. Yeah, it's the first time we can connect Steven Spielberg and adventure gaming, but not the last, and not the last in this episode. I'm glad you put this thing in of adventure gaming, so it's like, we really need to mention E.T., don't we? But no, <laughs> if it's adventure gaming, no, we don't. No, no, we don't. Uh, but that's when Loom comes in. So it was one of the earliest. Mm-hmm. I wasn't that far off. But not the, not the first, but not we the can't first blame by any you. means. Uh, Loom was the first one I played, I think. Uh, which, as I was trying to explain earlier on the recording, makes no sense because you are Bobbin Fredbear, a weaver, who works with the other mystical weavers on the loom that weaves the tapestry of life. So it's entirely understandable that the, uh, the hook game mechanic will be that you cast magic spells with a flute. <laughs> of, a flute of, of, like, looming? Nope. A, f- a flute of plus three weaving. A, no. a weaving flute? No. Does, does thread shoot out the flute when you play it? No. Is what, it a what shoots out the flute? Music. Weaver. Possibly sparks. Music, musical music. thread? No. Weaving music. <laughs> Suffice to say, it's a very strange game. Okay. But very good. I'll take your word for this. It is actually very fun. I mean, admittedly, there weren't a lot of options at the time, and I then discovered Maniac Mansion and found out that was also very fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one is comedy, one is semi-serious. Uh, the sad thing about Loom, though, is it ends on a cliffhanger. Uh, oh, uh, guys. To, to lead into Loom 2, which never happened. Do that. Loom, would you not call the sequel Looming? <laughs> or Fell Over? Or Loomed? No idea what they would have called the sequel, because the planned trilogy never happened. Uh, but the developers are still around, and doing different things, I recall. That was something you wanted to, uh, to touch on. Mm, various developers have worked on a lot of games, uh, but... Most importantly, in this point, the reason the Loom trilogy never occurred is many of the same guys, also around about the same time, came out in the same year, worked on a little game called The Secret of Monkey Island. <laughs> Which you may or may not have heard of. We may have, in fact, done a whole show on it earlier ourselves. Mm-hmm. And this is probably, I don't know, I would say this is the game that cemented the reputation of the LucasArts, LucasArts point-and-click adventure. Yeah. It was seminal. If it, I can use that word. It was it was irreverent, it was bright coloured, it was funny. Yeah. It was bloody hilarious was what it was. It was extremely funny. It was when the writing really shone through for LucasArts. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's not a surprise that, you know, following that there's the re release because God, how many discs did Monkey Island come on? <laughs> well, I can tell you that one of those discs wasn't really there. <laughs> also, I'd just like to point out Rubber tree. But yes, uh, a re-release almost immediately on CD with CD quality music. Um, ah, yes. I'm not sure if that version had voice acting. I don't think it did. But immediately as well, in the following year, Monkey Island 2, this was another thing that the scum allowed, was you could very quickly develop a game because you didn't have to write the programming behind it. You just wrote the assets. Art assets and the script to make the game run, and then you just throw it at the scum engine and, hey, presto. Hmm. I love the idea of throwing ideas at an engine. (laughs) (laughs) Turning it on, waiting for them to churn up, and then flow like a greasy soup. Wow. 
You, you described Monkey Island as a greasy soup. A delicious greasy soup that's hilarious and fights like a dairy farmer. Oxtail soup, then. Mmm, oxtail soup. Oh, no, not oxtail soup. Monkey tail soup. I have a problem with oxtail soup, and I also have a little anecdote that goes to show I am not the only one. Which was, we live in Gloucestershire, which very famously... I... Really? Yes. I thought we were keeping our location in Closely Guard a secret. Precise location. I think we can give them a county to work with. Gloucestershire, Congo. It's kind of like leaving clues for the police. Um, uh, we know all about that. <laughs> we do live in Gloucestershire, uh, which very famously, recently, within living memory anyway, flooded to hell and back. Yep. Now, during those floods, I lived out in the countryside, out in the sticks, unable oh. to get to town. Uh, but I was able to get to the local supermarket. Which right. A small out-of-town village area supermarket, wherein a lot of panic buying had occurred. I got to... People are mad. People are mad. Well, actually, no, it was really sensible because yeah. uh, we didn't get a delivery for weeks and weeks and weeks. We were out in the sticks. And I got to the soup aisle because I thought, soup, easy to store, keeps forever. And it had all gone apart from <laughs> one heavily dented can of, I think it may have been tomato, but heavily dented. Right. And all the oxtail soup, not one can of oxtail soup had been bought. That's that's bizarre, because oxtail soup's delicious. It's fantastic. It's not. I bought the heavily dented can of tomato. Philistine. Uh, I see. It's the it's the dog food pot noodle choice. It really is, yeah. I know what's getting eaten last. I can't, can't stand, stand pot, pot noodles. noodles. But just to touch on the floods one more time, was it not the most rubbish apocalypse ever? I don't know. It did inspire Warren Ellis to write Freak Angels, and I'm entirely okay with that. Yeah, but no gunfire, no zombies... Oh, there were zombies. Uh, definitely. They just couldn't swim. You forget so I live were... out in the countryside. Uh, okay. There were zombies, they just couldn't swim, so they weren't much of a threat. <laughs> also, there was gunfire, but again, it was underwater, so it wasn't much of a threat. Also, it wasn't very good. I've seen that Mythbusters episode, it wouldn't work. Exactly. Anyway, back, back to... Uh, it wasn't much of a threat. Back to what we're supposed to be talking about. Indeed. Scum! Scum! BM! Yes, after the Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2, well, there's the trilogy... Except it was a trilogy of four parts. Five parts. Lots of parts. Many, many It's now parts. episodic, so they're cheating. D- well... <laughs> that is the video game equivalent of cheating at numbers. It really is. But moving on, the next game that came out... Uh, and we're only up to, like, 1992. This is how rapidly these games came out on Scum. Mm-hmm. Uh, was The Fate of Atlantis. Great game. Because it's such an indie story. You know, yeah, and it is an indie story without actually being one of the three film indie stories. It's new Indiana Jones. And it's so much better than that that fan production, you know, that George Lucas made because he really <laughs> enjoyed the Indiana Jones movies. Interdimensional beings, in point of fact. It actually is a better storyline oh, than... man, yes. ...the latest Indiana uh, film. So if you're looking for more Indiana Jones and you can't stand that one because who can... Fate of Atlantis is really worth picking out. Because, and available on Steam. Yep. Not even taking a piss with that one. <laughs> no, it actually is. Uh, and again, it's a classic example of where LucasArts shine with the writing mm-hmm. in these games. Because there's only so much you can do with a VGA screen in terms of graphics. Yeah. Uh, but they pushed the boundaries with that as well. And we yeah. shall come on to that. In fact, they started pushing the boundaries, I think, in 1993 with Sam and Max hit the road. Oh, Sam and Max hit the road. Awesome. Following on from Monkey Island, this was possibly the next stepping stone 
on as the far road as to greatness. Lunacy. This one was voice acted. I remember it distinctly. Hey, Sam, do you mind if I drive? <laughs> as long as you don't mind me gripping the dashboard like a cheerleader and screaming. And one of the tricks they pulled was using the painfully cartoony graphics because it was inspired by a comic book slash cartoon by Steve Purcell. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's one of the little known facts about VGA 256 color mode. Oh, the good old days. Is that each frame has to have 256 colors, but they don't have to be the same 256 colors. So you can cycle the palette. So your artwork throughout the game could use many more than 256 colours, just huh. each scene had to be made out of 256 colours. Oh, that's yeah. very interesting, I didn't know that. And they started to really push that with this game, so you had um, a simple scene would have green grass, blue sky, you know, reddish walls, and very a lot of variation within those colours, but one or two primary colours would make up the scene. Yeah. And then a different location would be mostly green, brown, grey with a lot of variation within those colours. And it started to look extremely pretty. Because it was done very simply, but... Cell animation style. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking back now, and yeah, I can remember some of the zones, and just hmm. thinking, no, that limited palette turned to their advantage. Yeah. And it was that cell animation style of Steve Purcell that translated very nicely. Fluid animation. Something we talked about on the previous effort at this show. (laughs) was how what sold some of these games at this point onward, now that the technology is mature, is they really put the effort in as animators to make it flow brilliantly. Mm. And in the same way as Prince of Persia or Another World, you know, you can really sell the believability of a world with fluid movement. And it's something they did fantastically with Sam and Max. That's kind of the, the, one of the first times I imagine that graphics were used as a selling point on a game. Mm. I mean, the actual video sequences in Sam and Max, like very early on when Sam and Max crashing through the wall in the police car, <laughs> were, you know, they could have come straight out of the cartoon. Yeah. It was starting to become an on-screen experience in the video game, which uh, is definitely interesting. Videos using Game Engine. We had to go through the 90s and FMV before we went back to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no kidding. And... Now that the graphics were up to par and sort of seeing how it was done with Sam and Max, they revisited one of their, their great, venerable, the first scum game, Maniac Mansion. With Day of the Tentacle. Day of the Tentacle, the, the sequel to Maniac Mansion. I, I love this game. This is my favourite of all the games on this list, and I will sum it up for our listeners with, with just one example of gameplay. Any game in which you can use fake bath on George Washington is a fine game. I have to agree. This, I cannot this find had a single detrimental way effect to. to my formative sense of humour. When I was a young man, this ruined me. It was also incredibly adventurous in how it ran an adventure game. The fact that you're playing multiple protagonists across periods of time. So you have to Bill and Ted it. You have to set something up in the past for it to be available in oh, the future. Man. The, cause, the whole causality of it was just insane. You had to be thinking fourth-dimensionally, as, as Doc Brown would put it. It was insane. And again, you have to wait a few years until you find a game that's playing with the concept of using multiple characters quite so heavily. Hmm. I mean, yes, I'm sure if we don't mention it, we'll get people mentioning things like Lost Vikings and stuff, where there are different characters with different abilities. But one character having a bow and one character having a sword is very different to having different characters with different personalities and different time zones. 
setting up things using causality across history. That's that's a different thing entirely. Mm. It was so much fun. <laughs> it really was. The hamster goes in the motel freezer. <laughs> Spoiler warning. And it's full of parody, satire, comedy, the things that LucasArts did really well back in these days before they became, you know, the Star Wars knockoff fra- uh, factory. Yeah. Which is all they do now. Which is a really great shame, I think. It is. They've, they've, got, we, they've proven that they have the... Had. What's the... Had, sorry. Had. I will underline that. The abilities to make some really fantastic groundbreaking games. All right, some of their Star Wars games are good. Um, Not as good as they used to be. X-Wing. Yeah. Well, TIE Fighter. X-Wing versus TIE Fighter? No, TIE Fighter was better than X-Wing versus. Really? Yep. Never no, played well, that's just my opinion, but... <laughs> Take it for what it's worth. <laughs> it's good for my opinions as well, but I have very it's, few. It's easier to make money off of a franchise you know is going to sell exactly. than to have to break ground in the way that games developers during the late 80s, early 90s were. Yes. But, I mean, this was back in the time when they really were making some inventive... They were some of the best. Yeah, because... You look at what comes next after Day of the Tentacle, which I okay, I'll I'll settle my favorite game on the list as well. Yeah, <laughs> by a long shot. But following is Full Throttle, which had as voice talent Mark Hamill. Hooray! To, to, just to rope in some little more Star Wars references, I guess. <laughs> well, Lucas Arts, I suppose Lucas as a company has a decent relationship with the guy. Yeah. Uh, Full Throttle was interesting in that it was um, a completely new IP, came out of nowhere, mid-90s, 95, and it's about a biker. And it's kind of dark compared to a lot of the points and clicks. Yeah. I mean, so far up until now, everything has been... The, the darkest we've gotten is Indiana Jones. Who's, who's, whose idea of dark is to punch a Nazi in the chin and then swing away. Yeah. Whereas... It's Ben, isn't it, in Full Throttle? Yeah, Ben. ben. Yeah. Is a biker. He will beat people up with lengths of chain and... Huh. Actually, two by four, two brass by four. knuckles and... It is gritty. And it throw is... Duracell bunnies into a furnace. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. It is kind of gritty. It's still funny. It's still sat- uh, satirical. But, but it it's... does it with a different a different source. Yeah, it's yeah. it's starting to show that there are more grown-up audiences for video games, or an awareness of that. Which is one of the things I really appreciated about Full Throttle, because, man, I was of the right age for biker beating people up with chains to be, oh, yes, I'm grown-up, I'm 15, this is precisely the sort of game I want to be playing. <laughs> man. <laughs> and I know it's a, a favourite of at least one of our listeners. Yeah? Uh, yeah. Um, Josh. Oh, yes, of course. A huge, I think it's his favourite LucasArts game. And he has begged us to do a whole episode on it before. But then well, begged, asked. Well, <laughs> he, he's wrong, because Day of the Tentacle, but, you know, full throttle. It is an extremely good game. Yes. And it does warrant talking at more length at some point, but um, possibly on the forum. Go on, Josh, get it started. <laughs> go, go, gadget. And alongside that, in the same year... Talking of more mature audiences and more mature storytelling, came The Dig. Oh. And I said we were going to come back to Steven Spielberg. Because I remember you mentioning The Dig and how it was similar in storytelling in video games and stuff like yes. that. So this, yeah. Uh, because it was created by Steven Spielberg. This was his 
first actual foray into hands-on making a game. Steven Spielberg has a thing. He wants to make video games. He knows that this is a medium where he wants... He's a storyteller by trade, Mm -hmm. and he knows he wants to tell interactive stories, and this was his first real attempt at it. And having, on the one hand, Lucas's name behind the company and Spielberg's name behind the game specifically is how they drew in Orson Scott Card to write the thing, who is a multiple award-winning science fiction writer who wrote minor trifles like the Ender's Game series. Yeah. You know, you Fleeting diversions. <laughs> and they came in to make... Whilst it's not my favourite game on the lineup, it is the most cinematic, the most intelligent, mm. the most fascinatingly written one on the list. It is... Uh, a science fiction story, not even science fantasy, except well, it is quite fantastical. Yeah. But it has a very grown-up feel. It's is the dig another one of the games that has you setting up things in the past to no comes in the future. Was that ah? Oh. I don't think so. I guess when there was a, a, I swear it was a Steven Spielberg game where you've got to you're going you're doing a dig in a pyramid. Is it and no? Oh, I'm thinking of a completely different uh, game. The dig <laughs> is um, it's archaeology in space. Then it's a completely different game I'm thinking of. You're a NASA-funded um, archaeology team going out to dig on an extraterrestrial body. Uh, okay. And you discover a supernatural element to that body. Going much further than that would be spoiler territory. Okay, cool. But it's it's a grown-up story. It's a story worthy of Orson Scott Card. Also worth pointing out, Dig is available on Steam. Yes, it is. So you say spoiler warning, you can still play these classics. Absolutely. And, I mean, I have it on Steam because I played through it at the time and... I have such fond memories of it. I haven't played it since I bought it from Steam, but I wanted to own it again. Yeah. Because I know that I will get that urge. It's one of those stories where I have vague memory of it, and one day, I mean, it might even be soon now that I'm talking about it, (laughs) I will have that itch to to remember the whole story and go and play through it again. Because it's one of those games you can revisit, like a good story, like a good book, like a good film. Sit down with it, find the time with a cup of tea and a box of chocolates... And enjoy the storytelling. And it's not something that comes up that much with modern games, I suppose, really, is it? There's a couple of them. I don't know. There's, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but... Bioware writes great games, for example. Exactly, but there, there are very few games these days that you can really just go back and go, oh, I really want to play that again. It may be that we're just not far enough away. That's true. You bear in mind, The Dig was 1995. That was... 15 years ago. Oh, my God, yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> And we're not that far away from the modern games. Mm. I, Bioware, fantastic stories. I can see people wanting to go and revisit, you know, the original Halo. Yeah. yeah. For what it's worth, I think that's a fantastic story. The original Half-Life. Absolutely, definitely. There's a reason we put these games in a podcast and call them classics. Yes. Yeah. These are games I think people will want to revisit in the future. Yeah, we're looking. We're looking at kind of. I want to say, oh, what would you just said? The names of the games. <laughs> we haven't said them again. Halo. Halo. Hey, yeah, Halo. That sort of thing. These are our. These are the Ghostbusters of mm. of our current generation. You go back further to the dig. It's the third man. It's gone with the wind. Mm. These are, these are things which are so formative in storytelling and gaming. Yeah. No, I see where you're coming from. It's um, a really good analogy. Yeah. It's also a matter of which games are heavily story-driven. The point-and-click adventure is a heavily story-driven uh, format. Can't escape it. And 
you know, a lot of action games aren't. Yeah. And it was only with, you know, games like Half-Life making a resurgence in the importance of story, which was then taken on by Halo in the shooter genre, that shooters became story-driven. But there's always been a place for story-driven games, and I think those will be the ones that get replayed, because they are great stories that people want to revisit. Yeah. But just to finish off the list, I think the last Scum Engine game, I could be wrong. Yeah, don't, don't quote us on this one. The Curse of Monkey Island. Which was not the last Monkey Island game by any means, but it shows how far this game evolved, because this was the one that was full, beautiful, artistic rendering. Um, it looked high-resolution, glossy, beautiful gaming. And when you compare it, when you sit it next to its original, you know, its, its progenitor. Maniac Mansion, alongside it. Well, I mean, the original uh, Monkey oh, Island. the original Monkey yeah. Island. It's, the difference is night and day. The only reason Scum got abandoned at all, I believe, is 3D. You reckon? Well, you look at what came next in terms of the LucasArts games. Grim Fandango. Ah, well, yeah, but it's still a point-and-click adventure. And the following Monkey Island game. Right, but it's not Scum stuff. It's not Scum. That's why Scum was abandoned, I think. Okay. And and not point-and-click by any means, but Scum. So, I mean, these are a lot of the classics. Monkey Island is the classic series of Point and Click. Yeah. The Dig is a high point of storytelling and celebrity involvement, for want of another word, with Steven Spielberg. Orson Scott Card. Sam <laughs> and Max was a high point of just... Comic Yeah, and convergence between comic books and cartoons and gameplay. It's, it's and looking at Indiana hey, Jones. Yeah. <laughs> we are serious- talking... It's a serious fourth instalment in a, f- a well-established franchise. Yeah. So I, the LucasArts really did make the point-and-click adventure genre matter. Well, with certain ones of those things, they were really looking at, you know, into gamers and going, right, what are gamers like? So you've got comics and the cartoon characters. Yeah. You've got the Indiana Jones films, the slightly sort of, you know, that sort of film, and Steven Spielberg's work. So, yeah, yeah it would really appeal. And the people who were working on that, I, you know, you said that I'd noted that where they were now. And yeah, absolutely. It's worth noting that um, Tim Schafer went on Psychonauts, Brutal yep. Legend. Uh, we've got Ron Gilbert, who started on Monkey Island. And when you say we've got Ron Gilbert, we don't literally mean he's <laughs> here in the studio with us now. Studio? That I know of. Oh, not that you know of. I wondered who that was. Anyway, uh, there's, there is Ron Gilbert, who started off on Monkey Island and the like, and most recently was a story and gameplay consultant on Penny Arcade, the Rain Slick Precipice of Darkness. Which I think we might we might have to visit Penny Arcade Adventures at some point for a show. Oh, it's certainly worth talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think there's room to talk about point-and-click adventure games further somewhere down the oh, line. absolutely, because we so haven't many talked about Sierra. We haven't talked about... Uh, we haven't even talked about other games on the Scum Engine by other companies. Yeah. We've talked about Star, Star Factor. We haven't talked about Toonstruck. We haven't talked about Toonstruck. Uh, we haven't talked about Beneath the Steel Sky, which is a Scum Engine game made by Rebellion. Uh, Was it Rebellion or Renegade? Are you seriously asking me? Oh, God, why am I asking <laughs> Jack? That's a very good question. Let me check my notes. Let me check my notes. Russell, Russell, Russell. Revolution. Oh, it was, it was a rare word. Yes, I knew it was. Uh, Beneath the Steel Sky, fantastic game again. Mm-hmm. Again, I think 
significant writing talent involved in that one. Certainly significant art talent. All the art was done by Dave Gibbons, who some people may know as the artist from Watchmen. And is very good. But yeah, and other great series of point-and-click adventure games as well, like the Broken Sword series. Oh, God, I really want to do an episode on... Yeah, I they are, are their classics. All of the Sierra games, as I may well have mentioned already. Uh, the Discworld point-and-click adventure games, they were around yep. as well. Uh, oh, God, Future Wars. I want to play that one uh, again, because that was very, very fun. Activision Adventure. There was the Elvira games. Of course, Simon, uh, Simon the Sorcerer. Uh, I remember. I remember Simon the Sorcerer. So it was a very broad genre, and it's starting to come back just slightly. How'd you figure? Well, you've got Telltale coming along doing the new Sam and Max episodic stuff. Right. Whatever your opinion of it, it's there. Mm-hmm. Monkey Island has had a remake and episodic content. Again, whatever you may think of it, it's, it's there. there. A Vampire Story was an independently developed point-and-click adventure by a former LucasArts employee. I don't know of this one. It's pretty good. It's it's not of the old LucasArts standard, but it's thoroughly enjoyable. Okay. And that's there. And if you ask me, Heavy Rain. I think now, we're starting to stretch definition of point-and-click, but for from what I've seen of the demo, you'd... Yeah, I yeah, might be going out on a limb play. here. I might be going out on a limb here, but I really see... Heavy Rain as the point-and-click adventure game for the modern next-generation console. If what we're looking at here is the adventure game evolution from Zork and the like, the text adventure, upgrading graphically. So from the, the interactive fiction game to the... To the point-and-click point adventure. And you which think Heavy Rain evolved is... into Grim Fandango and the new Monkey Island, which yes. brought in three dimensions. I'd agree with that. And now we have Heavy Rain, which is... It's not an action game by any means. It's a story-driven game. It's it's a big evolutionary jump. And it's not a role-playing game, because you're not levelling up any character abilities or testing against any player skills. It is in the sense that you are playing roles. But it is in that you are playing roles. But it's a story, which is what the adventure game has always been. Finding your way through a story. To be fair, having, having seen the Heavy Rain demo... And you now going, yes, it's the evolution of point and click. Yeah, I can kind of see if they could get Harrison Ford to voice act for it. Yeah, the next, like, Fate of Atlantis done in that style. It would be how they would do it today. What? And that would be incredible. Did you just have a gasm? I might have just a little bit. (laughs) I hadn't even thought about it. But no, Heavy Rain does look astounding. Yes, Mm. I will fully back that. I I gotta say, I did take issue... Straight away to begin with, the whole thing of it's the next um, point-and-click thing. But now that we've sort of sat down and explained Clarified and talked that. about it, mm. no, absolutely, yeah. It totally, when I sat down and played it for the first time, it felt like that first time playing Grim Fandango, getting used to how it moves around, getting mm. used to interacting with the environment, and I went, holy shit, this is a point-and-click. It's a point-and-click on a console, so I'm not using a mouse, which is why it was a, a leap, a cognitive yeah, leap. and you're pushing the reactionary connection. buttons rather than use hand on doorknob yeah but it's also things like when you're checking for in the demo the body and it's look at different yeah. sections yeah so it's wow. all there and instead of um rows of dialogue appearing and you click on the one you want they hover around the character's head it's still the same game mechanic just presented in a different huh. way 
that, that has managed to endear heavy rain to me even further. Wow. <laughs> and don't do this. Now I might need to buy a PlayStation 3. I don't no, want to do that. You might need to buy a PlayStation 3. No, I don't. You might need to. I might. I won't. I won't. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I think we've, we've done our run-through of the Scum Engine games. Yeah. So we've touched on what makes them great, what makes, particularly you know, the LucasArts offerings and, and Scum in general, an awesome system. And we've touched on the fact that there is so much out there in terms of point-and-click adventure games that we couldn't possibly go through it all in one episode. Yeah, nowhere near. But there are certainly individual games I think we can devote a lot of time to in the future. Yeah. So I mean, we'll expect to see uh, World 1 Stage 1, the point-and-click series, for, for <laughs> yeah. a season. This won't be our last foray into the genre, oh God, because no. I know it was one of my favourites when it was strong. One of yours? Yeah. One of yours? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think you can rely on us coming back to this subject. But for now, I'm Simon. I'm Jack. And I'm Troy. Goodbye. Good night. Good night. You have been listening to World 1 Stage 1, a video game podcast. Thanks as ever to the mini-bosses for our theme tune. If you want to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at world1stage1.com. That's world, the number one, stage, number one. Com. You can email us through there, or you can follow us on Twitter. Just look up Twitter username, at W1S1. And through there, you can find the host's personal Twitter accounts, if you dare. <laughs> <laughs>